before we begin this next episode of the two five physios podcast let's start with the financial win of the week jordan how did you succeed this week all right so i've been driving around with a cracked windshield for like three years now <laughs> finally it's always something with your truck <laughs> finally doing my due diligence just trying not to get pulled over and uh and so when i was in irvine i was looking around at prices and they're like 220 um but they come out to you, which is nice. But then around here in LA, uh, they have this like whole street of just different venues with that. And so I stopped by the first one, and they were like, oh, you know, 150. And I told them, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shop around a little bit. And then they, then they threw 140 at me, and I was like, all right, I'll, I'll come back. Mm. And um, went to another place. They said that 142. The third place said 120. And by that time, everyone was closing down. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I was like, all right, all right, one twenty. That's that sounds pretty. Sounds pretty good. Come back the next day, and um, I stopped by a couple other ones just to see. And the other one seemed like, it just seemed a little more legit and felt more comfortable going there. So uh, their offer was uh, was one forty for me. And and like I told them, I was like, all right, well, these guys down the road are saying one twenty. I'd rather be with you if you could work with me for one twenty. And uh, he went and talked to his boss, and like I, kn- I knew they were gonna give it to me, but I was like, you know, he yeah, had to do the thing. And I uh, came back, and he was like, he's like, all right, we could do one twenty cash, cool. So always negotiating, always negotiating. Save thirty bucks right there. What was that? Was it uh, never split the difference, Chris yeah, Voss? Chris Voss. Okay, yeah, that was a book you had me read after uh, diving through that, and that was a really good one too. Mm-hmm. But and those you went into each of those places. You didn't just call. No, no, yeah, like okay. in person. Yeah, I think yeah, that that up. helps seal it too. Mm-hmm. When you can look them in the eye and say, "I'm about to pull one on you," yeah. <laughs> and just and just walk away. Yeah, the power of walking away—that's huge. It's great. Yeah, because oh. as soon as they started to pull out of that first one, they were like, "They're like, oh, yeah, one forty, one forty. I was like, "Nah, I'm good." Yeah, so, good call, man. Good call. Yeah, that was a win. I'd say. Absolutely, save some money there. Take care of your old truck. Every mm-hmm. week, little by little. <laughs> I'm almost legal, street legal. Yeah. Now. So I, I fixed my taillights. All the lights are on. Okay. Um, all I need to do is put my license plate on the front bumper. And I'm good oh, to go. Okay. Yeah. One more thing. One more thing. <laughs> that close. What about you? What you this doing? week, actually yesterday, uh, finished up doing my taxes through. So I guess... One thing that some people don't know about is that you can always file your federal taxes for free if you make like under like 75 or something thousand. If you just go to free file, type that in like free file IRS, there's like six or seven different softwares that you can use. Um, So I use the free file through tax act, T-A-X-A-C-T. But there's tax layer, there's all these other kinds of services. But yeah, you definitely shouldn't have to pay for, you know, filing your federal income taxes if you make under like seventy, eighty thousand dollars So I found out like two, three years ago. Um, so I've been using Tax Act ever since. And then did that all yesterday, rounded up all the W-2s and random stuff and nice. independent contractor stuff while watching UFC fights on streams. <laughs> and so got that done. Uh, have a refund, which is good. It was like almost 700. So all right. um, like I said, I think putting maxing out the IRA actually did help with giving me like a retirement credit or something to help towards the, you know, what I would have owed, I guess, if I didn't do that. So 
Uh, I guess Roth too, right? And that was a Roth. Yeah, maxing out the Roth somehow helped. I don't know exactly what credit. There's so many different like deductions and yada 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 you can do on these yeah. things. Maybe someone out there knows exactly. Knows. You know what that was, <laughs> but it definitely helped get you know the highest return I could. I guess you know in the fire community, like the ideal thing would be to have zero owed mm-hmm. or zero you know given back. Um, that way you're really not giving any free loans to the government, um, over time or you're not owing them anything. So I guess yeah. if that's really doing it perfect, if you really dialed it in, but I'm not on that level yet. So it's always nice to see a little bit of a return come March, April, but. Cause that would be nice. Cause then you could like put that money towards investments and it's making you money over the year instead of just mm-hmm. with the government. Yeah. But it's also really nice getting that free loan. I know it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it just feels good. <laughs> yeah, man. It's like the the other like dilemma of like pay off your mortgage. We're not here yet in this stage of our life, but the other dilemma in the fire community of like, do you completely pay off your mortgage? You can, or do you actually just invest that money you would have, you know, paid the mortgage off with and just get the returns in the market, which would have been higher than whatever. If you have a super low mortgage rate you know if it's three percent whatever you can probably beat that in the market so it makes more sense mathematically to not pay it off and just just invest it but i think the psychological win of being completely debt free is also trumps that so that's like my baby version with like a tax return (laughs) like do i want a thousand dollars in march no like i'm gonna get that thousand dollars or do i want to like give the government you know, whatever. Yeah. A yeah, free yeah. loan for 12 months. So it's tough. But that was a win. That was good. It's off the yeah. plate now. So. We're on the we're on the way. It's gonna be good to hit that like that first mark of net zero. Mm-hmm. That, like first step towards, you know, or yeah. Like, just like one of the pillars, I guess. Absolutely. It's gonna be good. One soon of enough, the soon enough. All right. Well, we're gonna be breaking down. A kind of special edition of a two fi article, a personal article that I wrote with uh, you know fellow authors at San Diego State, and uh, we're gonna break all that down right after the break. Jordan, you ready? Oh yeah! All right, let's hit it. Welcome to Two Fi Physios, the podcast where Tyler Smith and Jordan Spradlin, two doctors of physical therapy, discuss their journey towards financial independence, self development. PT research articles and host in-depth interviews with physios in the field. And we're back. This is the Two Five Physios podcast, where we are in this episode breaking down another article for you guys. This one's titled "Comparison of Blood Flow Restriction Devices." and their effect on quadriceps muscle activation. This is going to be published. It's already online, actually, but it's going to be in hard copy in May 2021 for the Physical Therapy in Sport Journal. So this is kind of a personal uh, update and episode for me because this is what I worked on in PT school, the doctoral research that we did for the last three years. So it's kind of seeing that full from the beginning to the end of, of what we started. So Really cool to bring this to you guys and kind of dive a little bit deeper into it. I think I sent it over to Jordan before, so I know he's really big on reading abstracts. I don't know if he if he actually read the full thing, but Dude, uh, I did. I he did. In on this, he I went all in this week. Today. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. Jordan's on board. I love this. Yeah. I'm firing in all cylinders. He's <laughs> he had extra coffee from his free coffee that he found last week on the street. Oh, so, it's so good. It's, it's yeah. So it's got a timer. It wakes him up <laughs> every day. So we'll talk about this study. I guess we can do a little mini overview on maybe what BFR is who you like to use it for. I know you've got more practical application than I do. Yeah. I don't have it in the clinics um, personally, but do you have, yeah, do you have any specific, I guess, patients that you found benefit from BFR or when do you like to use it, Jordan? Yeah, I mean, first, dude, I'm stoked that we are talking about your guys' article. It's good to see. I think, mm -hmm. like, is this the only one out of our whole cohort that's actually been published so far? Only one that I've, I did ask Rosenthal Thal and Rao, the, our director and my research advisor, Rosenthal, um, if we were the first. And Rosenthal couldn't confirm, but Rao said that maybe Maloof's group and one other may be publishing as well. Um, but I don't think, I think this is the first from our cohort to do it. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, um, that's awesome. Seeing you guys' names yeah. there and like, and absolutely. It's a really well written article. I was, I was even read through this, like, dang, okay. All okay. right, SDSU. <laughs> um yeah yeah so i guess like background like for bfr mm -hmm. just like my understanding of it and, and experience clinical experience and just my own research um i know that everything that i do with people i think i might have talked to this in previous podcast episodes was just my treatment philosophy is using the physical stress theory as my guiding mm -hmm. principles mm -hmm. with everything and dr maloof she was one of our mentors and instructors and she's like one of the leading authors on that article and it's all about just that physical stress and whether if it's if it's too much then you're gonna have tissue damage and death injury um if it's just enough you're gonna get some hypertrophic hypertrophic gains um and if it's just like a little less than that you might have some maintenance or even atrophy if you're not doing much of anything which i'm definitely getting the atrophy this year <laughs> post COVID 19 <laughs> lockdown atrophy baby <laughs> just thinning out over here. oh man it's been rough but california might be opening up soon next couple months yeah. i don't want to date the podcast too bad but hopefully <laughs> hopefully give you know governor newsom opens up and gives us a chance to get some uh massive gains in the next six months yes i'm, I'm just glad people are getting those vaccines and yeah pushed out there it's really really mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, for, for BFR in general, like I'm familiar with the metabolite theory in a sense where if you apply enough stress on certain tissues, like high intensity training or loading, like if you do a squat at like 85% or even greater than 67%, according to the National Sports Conditioning Association, you're going to get enough gains for like hypertrophic changes and how does that happen through metabolite theory being you're producing lactate um, in those very short periods of time requiring a lot of force. You're producing lactate, which then stimulates growth hormone and an and influx of protein synthesis, which then eventually leads to hyper, hypertrophic gains for increased cross-sectional area of muscle tissues. So that's like my understanding of the metabolite theory and mm -hmm. why we lift weights and how it manifests in the global scheme of things when you look at someone. Um, but like, like you guys 
very well put in your intro of your paper. Not everyone can do that. So I even have um, particularly your post-op patients who, when it comes to their physical stress and what levels they can tolerate, it's going to be very low. But what we'd like to do is stimulate those muscles with high loads, such as high training, high intensity training. Can't do that with post-op patients, but BFR has been shown to show the same type of gains with very low load, um, just with blood flow occlusion. So I have a, right now I have a, um, a labral repair, right hip labral repair. And then I actually have an interesting case. Um, he's like a 47-year-old skier. Mm. Uh, he was out in Utah, staying out there for a month, like working from home. Um, was, he said he was going about like 50 miles an hour, uh, hit a rock, felt a pop in his ankle. And a couple of days later, he was just walking around and felt another pop and then had a pretty obvious um, defect in his Achilles mm. tendon. MRI confirmed that he has about 20% left of his Achilles tendon. So mm. Right now, he's walking around in a cam boot. Um, and someone like that, I'm going to want to do BFR with because there's no way I'm loading that 20% left mm-hmm. of Achilles tendon um, in any way really right now um is he gonna go through with surgery do you know 100 percent, or is he gonna try to conservative route? so that's the thing i was looking i was looking more into the research with that and mm-hmm. right now it looks like conservative just because like re-rupture rates between the two it's not that significant mm-hmm. long term yep um but if you do want to go back to like sport very high level sport activity you should probably uh, surgical intervention but he's gonna try conservative right now it seems like oh. i have a similar patient well Similar in the sense that he's kind of an athlete, but not the same type of sport, but um, kind of onto my caseload now. I didn't do the initial evaluation, but uh, maybe a 25-year-old male tennis player who partially tore his Achilles back in October. And so based on the location of it, the surgeon recommended non-conservative, or sorry, non-surgical intervention at that time. Mm-hmm. So he's been coming in the clinic and trying to slowly build up. We're just starting to get into like trampoline jumping and like, you know, a little bit of cutting, hopefully next time I see him and kind of change of direction type of stuff. But yeah, another kind of young individual athlete, non-surgical. And so we're trying to see how far we can get with conservative, you know, approaches there. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, if you, if you had the, the BFR backpack, the Delphi, that would be perfect for him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I wish, I wish, nothing there. Just a lot of ultrasound in my clinic, so <laughs> we'll see if that works. We'll just ultrasound that Achilles all day. Three megahertz. <laughs> so yeah, not not the greatest success, but uh, we have Pilates reformer. We have got uh, other random stuff. So oh, I've just been yeah. making them do a bunch of heel raises and some eccentrics, and we're gonna we're gonna get, like I said, get into some uh, cutting and stuff pretty soon. So. We'll try. We'll try everything. But okay. That's well, that's cool. That'd be a good BFR patient for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. And you had some others at when you're in school at your clinical rotation at 29 Palms, you said? Oh, yeah. So when I was in 29 Palms with the Navy working with the Marines, um, definitely BFR was pretty highly utilized uh, since BFR originated um, in the military. And it was, we had a few post-op patients that we did it for, and there was just a few others, just like with some acute type injuries that, that we did it for. So it was, it was used at least once or twice every single day um, with certain patients in the clinic. So that mm-hmm. was my first sort of 
introduction with it outside of school. And now that we have one at my clinic, um, I, I use it. I'm, I probably use it the most out of all mm. of the clinicians at, at my work just because yeah. I want to be efficient. And I mean, mm-hmm. this works. So I'm going to do it. Um, also, you could build for therapeutic acts. That's cool. Oh, and, nice. um, and, and, and yeah, I had an ACL who I did it with. I stopped using it with him, though, because he's already three, four months out. Okay. And um, did it with him in the first three months or so. There's probably a lot from the search because Dr. Hatch, he's one of the orthopedic surgeons at USC, and he's phenomenal. He gets great outcomes. So uh, there's a lot there. But also with BFR, with um, my ACL revision, he he never do- he has never done that before until mm-hmm. he met me. And just three, three and a half, four months out now, he's like, honestly, I feel way better now than I ever did with my past surgery wow. six months out. Um, so he's able to do quite a few different things. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go in. It's pretty much the BFR. You're pretty much a miracle worker. Is that, is that, yeah. <laughs> I am the god of PT. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's man. fair. You could say it. Could say it. <laughs> not, not even close. Not yeah. even close. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's cool. Yeah, I wish I had uh, more direct, yeah, direct patient experience. I have done, I guess, both me, you, and I guess Vuking in uh, grad school at San Diego State took like a practical blood flow restriction online course from Wichita State. So that was kind of an interesting look at, um, you know, without a Delphi, without any kind of fancy setup. If, if is it practical to do this with patients or anything just with basically wraps kind of thing? And how can you regulate that? And I mean, I have my own little cheap knockoff Amazon BFR here. So I've been doing that just for like my shoulder strengthening routine before bed kind of thing. So uh-huh. it's nice and, in, in, you know, lockdown too, to have at least access to something like that. So it's in, it's in my routine personally, but yeah, I've never, never tried it with patients. I do have an ACL patient. He's going to get surgery on the 31st of March. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, what, if that's even going to be an option, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I for, man, I forgot about Dr. Deck. Dr. Deck, huh? Wichita yeah. State online. Wichita. All right. That was a pretty cool class, actually. Yeah. That was. He was cool. I really liked him and learned a lot. Um, yeah. So. And it goes to show you don't have to have these um, like machines that mm-hmm. Tyler will allude to more and more in his paper. You can just you can grab some. What, what were the straps again? They were just like weightlifting knee straps. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of the brand name. It's basically just what you said. Yeah, I just think it was uh, kind of like almost elastic type strap with the, yeah, very simple setup. You would just tie it off even yourself. So mm-hmm. yeah, not saying that's going to be the most uh, reliable with, you know, between patients and all that. But um, in terms of just quick and dirty, if you're trying to do it to get some benefit, I think that it could go, you know, a little bit in that direction. So Yeah. That was a little uh, credit accreditation thing we took, but yeah, let's break off into the uh, the main topic of discussion here. So again, this was my paper looking more at muscle activation. So when we did our kind of lit review of what was out there back in first year of PT school, we're like near the general topic. It was going to be something BFR related, and then. In terms of what we could contribute to the body of research, it seemed like there hadn't been much of a discussion between different types of blood flow restriction devices and specifically if that would impact 
muscle activation or if that would impact um, perceptions of um, pain, fatigue, exertion, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so Rosie, our doctoral advisor, had that kind of initial um, interest. And then we, we chose lower body uh, quadriceps just because a lot of research had already been out there with using um, EMGs on quads. And it's just kind of like an easier setup than Rosie's now doing a study for the rotator cuff muscles. And that's going to be looking at like four or five, you know, different things um, within that. So the quads is a little bit easier to, to a set up for quick, efficient use. And um, also just like the body of research behind ACLs and all that kind of stuff was already out there for us. So that's kind of the origin of why we even attempted to do this study um, was just to look at if there was a difference between kind of the higher end, the $5,000 Delphi personalized tourniquet system versus a more standardized be strong device that is maybe around a thousand dollars. So that's what we were kind of trying to look at. We did all of this at the biomechanics library at San Diego state, just kind of a convenient sample of undergraduate students, a lot of exercise phys students. Um, we wanted them to have at least one year of um, resisted strength training experience for once a week, just so they had less of a likelihood of getting rhabdo or DOMS and significant contraindications or no surgeries, previous surgeries to that knee. Those were like the main inclusion criteria between 19 and 30 years old, males and females. So generally young, active individuals um, that we were trying to get into the study. I was one of them. And then, yeah, study. and Jordan was in. The, Jordan is one of those statistics <laughs> that you read in this. Yeah. He's the one that had no muscle activation throughout Hold, the entire. Holding that curve down. <laughs> holding that curve down. <laughs> He's off the charts. He's off the charts. <laughs> um, no, so Jordan was in this study. So that was cool. We were looking at muscle activation as our prime um, focus. And then secondary outcomes were muscle swelling. So we were looking at thigh girth and circumference of the thigh, just proximal to the, like the knee joint line, basically. And then we had also looking at the NPRS, numeric pain rating scale, and the OmniRes. So for the RPE, basically, after each set, so we're recording the peaks of those. And then we took the basically the middle repetitions of the BFR sets and the middle reps of the high load condition, um, just to get a little bit more, I guess, normalized, because sometimes at the end of the sets, patients would kind of drop off and it would do all kind of funky things. So we're trying to get more of a the good working sets through the middle portion of the, the reps. And we're looking at two BFR devices and then comparing that to a high load condition. So looking at those main outcome measures and three different conditions, all patients received all the conditions. So it's a crossover study and randomized to the order of it. So some got the high load condition first, others be strong, others uh, Delphi. And basically before each patient came in, they would do a warm up on a bike five minute on a bike, self-selected pace. And then they would do a maximal voluntary isometric contraction. So basically trying to see before the, the testing session even started what the NVIC was so we can compare it later during their activity. This is on each testing session day. The familiarization we found their peak for on the biodex, basically to calculate their one repetition maximum. 
So that was like the familiarization. They would come in, test all the devices. We'd get their calculate their 1RM based on their peak torque on the biodex in a knee extension position. And then, yeah, they'd be randomized into each of the three conditions. We'd be assessing muscle activity throughout with either B-Strong or Delphi, which was at a 30 repetition for the first rep, first set rather, 15 for the second, 15 for the third set, and 15 repetitions for the fourth set or a high load condition, which was four sets at eight, eight, and six, and six repetitions. So a lot of numbers there. The BFR conditions were set to 30% of whatever that one rep max was calculated with the biodex, and the high load was at 80%. So those were kind of like the variables we were playing around with there. Is that all kind of making sense, Jordan? Is that? Oh, yeah. No, all that, all with that, that. sounds good. And um and yeah, just looking at quad activity, comparing, we did, we we're looking at gender differences. We we're looking at type of um, either Delphi, high load, or B strong. And then we we're looking at set, if there was any differences between those three. So uh, ANOVA for that. And for the results, peak and average basically showed high load consistently, had higher activation across all sets and all types um, for the, yeah, for quad activity. And that was consistent with both peak and average EMG amplitudes. And then between the two BFR conditions, there was essentially no difference, at least in peak and uh, average EMG. There was a difference for the secondary statistics and secondary results for pain and the RPE values. So. That was higher in the Delphi, the more expensive unit compared to both high load and B strong, and as well as the B strong higher than the high load condition. So basically, the high load had higher activation with all four quad muscles. We really only did three. We did rectus femoris, vastus medialis, vastus lateralis. So high load had higher activation, peak and average for all those muscles. And the Delphi had higher perceived pain and perceived exertion than both B strong and high load. So those were the main results. Secondary results, there was no change in thigh girth between any of the conditions. So there was no cell swelling effect, maybe contributing to that higher pain level for the uh, BFR devices. And then I already talked about the, yeah, the pain and the RPE values. So those are the main results for the entire study. Yeah. You know, I thought it was interesting that you guys chose like muscle, muscle activation via EMG mm-hmm. as opposed to like a lot of studies. Cause, um, cause that's more of just like a motor control component. Mm-hmm. So, um, I was wondering just why did you guys choose that as, as opposed to maybe a more longitudinal study looking at hypertrophy? in general with BFR. Yeah, I think ideally, yeah, ideally it would have been something more two, three, four months um, down the line if you really wanted to track those changes. I think I think just for maybe ease of, of getting patients in there for three, four times and just being kind of done with it, I think that it a little bit made more sense to do the surface EMG, but you're absolutely right. Like surface EMG is really just a proxy 
of muscle action potentials is not really telling you what muscle fibers are firing. If it's slow twitch type one or fast twitch type two, you can kind of guess at those things, but it's not like a direct, direct measurement of those really important measures, but it's, it's accepted enough in the literature where it seemed more feasible than doing a, you know, three, four month follow-up with every patient and, you know, getting into the tissue and, you know, taking out, you know, cross-sectional areas of their tissues and seeing what was being recruited and all that. So I think it was more just, um, practicality purposes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, that, effectiveness that's versus efficacy. That clinical research, like, I mean, in, in the, in the laboratory setting at, at state, um, that was something I was, I was thinking about when I was doing it. Cause it was all like, all right, we're just looking at muscle activation of all different B strong and which is, which was like the static, um, occlusion rate and, uh, Delphi. And I think probably Delphi, I remember like, for those of you who have been on it before, you know how it is. It isn't the most comfortable thing in the world. Um, and I think it is just that, that constant adjusting of trying to maintain that 80% occlusion rate keeps it there. Cause there has to be something with B strong where it, it loses that like mm -hmm. rate throughout, throughout the range of your movement, something along those lines. Yeah, so like what Jordan's saying, the Delphi is what we described as a regulated BFR device where it would, it's a pneumatic cuff, so it adjusts the air in the device throughout the range of motion, which would obviously change during a knee extension, how much, you know, their, their muscles were going through in terms of tension and stress. So the Delphi changes that in real time, and then the B-Strong would be basically inflated to whatever the Go, I think it's called go be strong app. There's like a algorithm online that you can basically plug it in to for their height, weight and all that kind of stuff. And it would tell you what to put the occlusion pressure at. So that is the standard. So it wouldn't change basically throughout between each, um, set, we would re inflate it if it had deflated at all, but basically the occlusion was on the entire exercise. So 30 up repetitions, 15, 15, 15 entire time is a, being occluded and then after we would take the pressure off deflate it and then we'd measure limb uh, yeah the limb girth basically so um that's how the day-to-day -day went but and and there was no statistically significant difference in limb girth correct yeah not for any of them, so for any of them. Yeah. which is expected because that's like just one one session yeah um, one but... session yeah if we had been doing like three or four different exercises maybe it had been different but yeah we we're just doing one exercise and trying to check thigh girth basically after that other big um limitations of the study was it would have been nice to have one more arm that was non occluded but low load so like we would have low load bfr delphi low load bfr be strong low load just 30 percent and then comparing that to high load as well, just to see, I mean, it's always nice to have one more like control without any cuff as well. If we could have done that, that would have been nice. Mm -hmm. And then also the, the BFR cadences were set to two second concentric, two second eccentric, whereas the high load 80% one RM group each session, I guess, because they all did each one, but every time they did the high load, it was just to self-selected cadence. So that's another big one because we do know power is influenced by like the velocity of movement. So 
potentially the more activity in the high load was due to just them not holding it for two seconds, just them pushing very fast concentrically for a second to get to the top and then slam it back down. And then, so maybe that power associated with it increased the muscle activity as well. So we did that because basically in the literature, that's how it is done. Um, everything with the BFR is a 30, 15, 15, 15, two second concentric and eccentric protocol. And then high load is basically two minutes of rest between sets, but it's self-selected pace. So we just kind of had to do it that way, but it'd be interesting to see it kind of uh, slowed down if that would change it. Yeah. Um, something else I would have liked to seen is I think, or not, not seen, but just like something that I took from this is mm-hmm. um, when you're looking for at least muscle activation, mm-hmm. um, you're trying to get that muscle to activate a little bit more. Maybe just in this one set, I wouldn't say like BFR is the go-to like modality or the activity if you're solely looking for muscle activation. Um, but if you are looking for more like uh, physiological changes that are similar to those high load stresses that you guys demonstrated with the 80% one rep max, then I think that would be, that's definitely like why I use it with people. I know that muscle activation or that certain like activity, muscle activity will, um, will catch up in the long run. But if you're just going for activation, there's other modalities that you can do for that control aspect. Yeah, I would agree. I think, yeah, we were, I guess we were trying to maybe see if what the, maybe the mechanism between low load BFR being so comparable in many ways to the hypertrophy of high load, if, if maybe that had to do with something with muscle activity, but it turns out probably not. And in like the general research we did in the back to see other studies out there like this, it seemed like Jeremy Lenicky's published a bunch of BFR research. And whenever he had a high load group and a low load group, it seemed like the load mattered more to muscle activation than the occlusion status. Same thing with Wernbaum. And so, cause he had subjects go through 30% 1RM with and without BFR, but they went to failure in the non-BFR group mm-hmm. and they, they had similar muscle activity so it seems like it seems like you can get similar effects with um non-bfr and low load but you have to go to failure right and so that may take forever if you have a really strong individual so bfr can basically short circuit how long it takes to get to that muscle failure so i think it's good for that aspect of it's it's driving a sufficiently hard stimulus to the muscle that you get essentially what that failure would be without having to hit failure, but doesn't take quite as long. Technically, you probably do the same, a lot of the same things, you know, if you took more patients to failure throughout the daily activities, but it's just kind of something to be aware of. But yeah, we had, I guess, other quick things. We had 30, about 30 subjects, um, 18 males, 16 females. So a decent sample size, but I guess that's another limitation you could always Gotta increase the sample size for a more powerful study. It's always yeah. more. But I, I did see that like your guys' minimum threshold was thirty, to make it significant. So you made it above. Yeah. Them, so that's all right. Yeah, we hit that hit that threshold. Other quick things about the study that I may have missed. I think we were just really trying to see if the fancy pantsy you know Delphi system is really worth it, or if you can get similar things to the B strong. 
And it, it, if I had to do muscle activity, if that was what I was going for, I would get the B strong. I wouldn't, it was less painful and it was less exhausting <laughs> than the, the Delphi. And it did essentially the same thing. So that was kind of one of my takeaways is especially with elderly patients and someone that's not as accustomed to resistance exercise. If you're going to do it, I mean, for this purpose, just for muscle activity, then they probably wouldn't even tolerate a Delphi unit to begin with. So something to, to keep in mind, but I think the, the benefits, you know, of getting to, you know, of, of the things that we didn't test in the study, you know, hypertrophy strength, all that may be better realized with the Delphi than a B strong. We didn't look at that, but, and I don't know of too many studies out there doing that, but I would be curious now just to see where you know where exactly the difference is in these devices and what we can tease out but if you're going for muscle activity i think that delphi is a tough way to go tough sell basically yeah to a yeah. lot of patients i completely agree just for muscle activity alone um, mm -hmm. i mean we could we could easily have a whole other podcast on just like the hypertrophic gains from bfr itself and like how that compares to just high intensity um, loads like greater than 80% one rep maxes um, those comparing those two would be I think that I think that'd be another good episode really. maybe I should go get certified by Owens this upcoming weekend I know you're talking about it come yeah back. <laughs> come back and and preach but yeah that oh. would be another good episode yeah more of the deep dive into the BFR BFR world because I think I'm just yeah I am very excited as as a modality basically because it's different than laying on a table and receiving treatment. It's basically, I'm more interested in active modalities for sure. I think the, the nature of PT is getting towards that direction, hopefully at least of less towards, you know, lying on a table and getting tens and getting more involved with movement and all these kind of things. So I like the idea of BFR because you're making them work sufficiently hard to, to elicit the responses. But there's also ischemic preconditioning and you can actually attenuate a lot of atrophy just by strapping on a, a BFR device, you know, post-op. So you don't always need to, to load them with BFR. You can load them if they can tolerate it, low load. Um, but you could also strap it on, put NMES as well, and just kind of do like a, what's called IPC, ischemic preconditioning. So in general, though, I think it's better than a lot of other modalities where patients come in and then they have no exertion. They don't get a good workout. They don't drive stimulus in the body to change. And like you said, it's kind of the, like the Wolf's law with bones and physical stress theory, all these kind of things. So I think all working patients, yeah, working patients sufficiently is, is really necessary. So excited where the BFR research is, is going in the future. But. Shoot, that's a good point that you brought up that just pre ischemic conditions. I might just do that with my labral repair. That could be interesting. That would be good just to see how she tolerates it. She's also one of those patients who's like every little thing. She's like, oh my gosh, am I going to hurt myself? Am I going to hurt this and that? So might be good just to get her to do some quad sets or glute sets in that, in that supine position with that. Maybe I'll try that out and report back. I think that's one of the better places to start, at least to get them familiarized with, with the device and quad sets, glute sets, you know, no activity. Basically the, the protocol for that is five minutes of either 100% limb occlusion pressure or 80%. So probably start with 
five minutes and then three minutes free flow and then repeat that five times so it's like an eight minute it's an eight minute set five times so it's 40 minutes basically if you're going to just do the ipc straight up at either 100 or 80 percent but try it out do two sets of that one set of that that is kind of something that you wouldn't even really need to be you know after she's kind of got it on her own you probably wouldn't need to watch every second of it or you could be doing you know neuro read or explaining you know self-care strategies basically while she's doing ipc so probably get other things around that too but yeah i would probably start isometric supine just whatever quad sets glute sets i set her up and go to lunch 40 minutes yeah that'd be perfect (laughs) yeah (laughs) all right you're good right okay yeah (laughs) that would be good if she's still giving you a hard time, just strap it around the neck and then <laughs> <laughs> she won't be your patient anymore. It'll be good. So yeah, that's always something to, to think about, but uh, yeah, I am really excited. I'm glad this got published. I'm uh, hoping to accept the Nobel prize, you know, in Sweden come uh, <laughs> October. Yeah. I'm looking at the names right now and you got a, you got a fancy little asterisk next to you. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's that all about? That's because I'm the corresponding author. So, oh, man. Okay. so Jackie, we just did alphabetical, but Jackie did put in put in enough work to be lead author, I would say. And then Rosenthal is the anchor. So it's always the first name as a really important person, the the principal investigator. And then the last person is the anchor of the paper. So probably a little bit more of the who came up with the idea and all that kind of stuff. And then I'm just the co- corresponding author in between of like, oh, Talk to me if you have questions or like want to yell at me about this whole thing. So, and you're yeah. already getting emails, right? I got one email about this yeah. guy. He was nice. He was like a physiology professor in Ohio. He's like, Oh, can you tell me why you didn't uh, load them in the first set and, and all these kind of things? So, I was mm-hmm. fielding his questions, but I just basically told him to, to go pound sand, you know, like back <laughs> off. <laughs> That's what my dad says. It's like my favorite saying of all time. <laughs> pound sand yeah i love so that's what i told him i was like we're published you're not man so just (laughs) bag off no he was he was a nice gentleman yeah so and what i what i really did like about your paper which you don't find in a lot papers is this is very reproducible like what you wrote what you guys wrote in the methods Mm -hmm. you can easily reproduce this in your own clinic without Mm -hmm. having to hit up tyler all the time like wait Mm -hmm. how do you do this or that so um, it was actually pretty well laid out, um, which is hard to come by. So you guys for doing that. Yeah, the method section probably took the longest to write. You don't realize how in-depth that needs to be until, until you start writing that part. So I think Mason did a lot of that. But mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. It is important because the more detailed that gets, the better springboard it is for future research on BFR. And that's kind of obviously where we took the protocol of 30, 15, 15, 15. The, uh, the the rep ranges and all that so based on previous bfr literature so it's important to to reproduce other stuff that's been out there to then move forward with saying oh well let's tweak this parameter this paper was, had a different one so i think having a solid method section is probably the best way to go but yeah and like you know just talking about that i think like what i would want to like the next jump off that i would want to see after this is probably just more more sessions to see how that affects muscle activation because i i mean i got a feeling that it's going to go up and and that so it might be comparable to the normal like high intensity 80 80 percent one rm max that's what i would like to see anyone out there do it do it not, 
Because like, all right, yeah, because I want to ask you, Ty, after going through this whole process, like you're published mm-hmm. now, you're a published author, you went through, you went through it all. You want to keep doing this? Type no. Of <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know, man. I think uh, it's cool. That was, hard no. <laughs> that, was a hard, that was a quick no. I don't know. That was uh, I, I knew what you're going to ask. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. If I could go back, would I still do this? Once the PTSD like wears off, I'll think about it. But like, yeah, like, it's probably I gotta wait a year at least. I don't know. I think it is cool to like, yeah, to do stuff like research wise, the back and forth as the corresponding author. Like I had to like get the paper fully ready and in the each journals, like, you know, make sure it's this font and this width of this, you know, like every little detail. So that was that was very meticulous with each journal being so different of like you know bold the second word of the fourth paragraph you know like this time you know like just like little things like that which is very annoying and research takes forever and there's always limitations and people are always going to rip your stuff apart so mm-hmm. all that factors in would i do this again i would say 100 percent would be like i'm gonna do this like very soon zero percent would be like i'm never gonna read or go to pubmed again i would say like i'll i'm like I'm like 60% into the research train. Like I, there's a good chance I would like to be at least a part of something like as a clinician, potentially, you know, like at a hospital, sometimes they do studies and stuff like that. So it would be cool. It would be cool to be included. I don't think I would be maybe like a lead author or anchor or anything like that, but like take part in research. I think it would be cool to try to create a best practices or a CPG or something further down the line. So, Yeah. Yeah, sixty percent. That's up there. Sixty percent. Yeah. If if hundred is like go down the PhD route uh, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, I remember thinking about that in a third year, and then went to CSM in Denver and like uh-huh. visited some PhD talks and stuff. And you know, I was still interested in it, but now that I'm like out working in the field, I don't know. Yeah. I'm leaning away from it, but who knows? Who knows what happens down the road? Yeah. Um. Something I think I might want to start, like to contribute to the research, is probably uh, just like an imaging case study. You know, you see those in JOSPT. There's like mm-hmm. I don't know, like a page or something of just a patient case image, yeah, like, all that stuff. I think maybe maybe something there. Okay. If I if I want to go above and beyond, I'll try that by the end of the year. We'll see. Nice, 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 nice. Yeah, I see you name on the uh, JOSPT publication. Just trying to do anything and everything to get in the military. Jay Spread, <laughs> he's gonna do it. We're gonna do it. Oh yeah, we got we got we got a good couple of interviews coming up this month. I'm excited. Ooh. Yep, stay excited, people. Yeah, we got a couple of military future interviews, big names, probably uh, explode the podcast and popularity in the next couple of months. So we'll see how that works. Taking off after this. Yeah, this is the big <laughs> break that we've been waiting for. We're going to increase our viewership by at least 100% from two to four, four to eight, one of that. Yeah, it's going to happen. Compound effect right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) One of these days, just keep grinding, Um, you know, overnight success takes 10 years. That's what they say. So we'll we'll be out here. We'll be out here. All right, Jordan, blood flow restriction. We'll probably we'll come back to this topic. I'm guaranteeing in a future episode we could talk more mechanisms we can talk 
more research what's out there um so much to talk about just listen to this uh johnny owens csm presentation about updated bfr research in 2021 and what's out there so we could always break some of that stuff down do another kind of systematic review of this stuff but i'm always geeked out on bfr research so i'm always down to talk about it cool yeah, man prop, props to you guys um thank really you to see that your name out there searching thank you thank you thank you all right pt and sport that is titled Comparison of Blood Flow Restriction Devices and Their Effect on Quadricep Muscle Activation. Jack Lee Bordesa, Mason Hearn, Alex Reinfeld, Tyler Smith, Harsimwan Bowija, Susan Levy, and Michael Rosenthal. And that was it. Uh, Har- Harshamon? I, I still don't even know how to say his name after yeah. him being my mentor for three years. <laughs> Sim, Sim Bowija. That's what he said. Yeah, we just call him Sim. Call him Sim. <laughs> he's on here somehow he just uh he just tagged his name like in the author's last minute i don't know how he snuck in there but that is the paper go ahead and read it i guess it's free for 50 days on uh elsevier science direct where i'm looking at it but yeah check it out if you want to hear from uh anything else any questions comments you can hit us up on email with uh info at two five physios.com Two Five Physios as our website, and obviously the podcast. How you found us now? So that's about it. Anything else you want to wrap up with, Jay? And that's it, man. Good article. All right. Thanks again, brother. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Two Five Physios podcast, where we bring the fire mindset to the physio lifestyle.